it was Thursday morning already, and I realized with horror that there were only two more days left. Two more days for me to speak with the hermit Peter Calvey, whom I come to consult about my spiritual life. As usual, he arrived dead on time. I did feel sorry for him. He looked so hot and bothered as he sat down in his chair. It was another scorcher outside, even hotter than yesterday. But he was still wearing a massive white woolly pullover. Uh, would you like to take it off? I asked. No, thank you, uh, James, said Peter, looking for all the world like a large bewildered polar bear that had taken a wrong turning and suddenly found himself in the tropics. You've convinced me of the importance of time when it comes to prayer, I said. But now I'd be most grateful if you would give me some idea of how to fill that time. What I mean is, now you've convinced me that God's love can alone change me, and that prayer is the only way to open myself to receive that love, could you please advise me how to start? Would you teach me how to pray from the very beginning? Of course, said Peter. The first time that question was asked of Christ by his followers, he answered by giving them the prayer that we call the Our Father. In the first two words of that prayer, the Our and the Father, are summed up the whole context and direction of all Christian prayer. The place where this Christian prayer begins, or more precisely, the person in whom that prayer begins, and the person to whom that prayer is directed. Take the word are. This one word sums up the whole context of all prayer. The great mystery of Christian rebirth at baptism means that we are instantly lifted up out of ourselves and into the life and action of our risen Lord, in whom we now live and move and have our very being. And this love that surges out of him is open to all, as it never was before, because his infinite loving has its centre everywhere, and its boundaries nowhere. Uh, could you explain a little more clearly what you mean, I said? Certainly, said Peter. Before the resurrection, Jesus' human body was subject to all the restrictions of space and time that bind the rest of us. He, too, could only be in one place at any given moment. Contact with him, therefore, was necessarily limited to where he happened to be, how long he was going to stay there, and how many other people he wanted to see, or how many other people wanted to see him. But once he'd been lifted out of the world of space and time by the infinite love that now possessed him, he was freed from all those limiting laws and restrictions. In the eternal dimension, he could be present to countless numbers of people at any given moment, because he could be present to them, not just from the outside as before, but from the inside through love. This is the love he released like a supernatural tsunami on the first Pentecost day to penetrate and possess all who would freely choose to receive it. Now, said Peter, since Christ can enter into everyone through love, then everyone can enter into each other in him. 
just as the spokes of a wheel automatically come closer to one another as they draw nearer to the centre, so everyone automatically comes closer to one another as they draw nearer to Christ. When we say the Our Father then, Peter emphasised the word Our, we don't just mean that we pray with Christ and in Him, but we pray together with all who are alive in him, with the whole community of the living and dead, because in him there is no death. We pray with Mary too, with Peter and Paul, Augustine, Francis and Dominic, with Ignatius and Teresa. We pray with loved ones now dead who have been reborn in Christ. Prayer opens us to the world where space and time no longer have any meaning. Our prayer can reach out and unite us with other Christians now languishing in the prisons of the world for the faith that we can so easily take for granted. It can enable us to bring strength and comfort to the innocent victim of some vicious regime who is about to be tortured at this very moment. Peter paused for a moment's respite before continuing. You probably saw the Catholic doctor on television who'd been tortured in a Chilean jail. She was given electric shock treatment and been subject to all sorts of indignities. Yet she stated quite simply that she received tremendous help from the prayers of friends back home. She likened their prayers to waves of love that sustained her through some of the darkest moments of her ordeal. On the same news program, I heard the story of a group of Christians suffering in a Chinese indoctrination camp who would risk their lives to smuggle a tape recording out to their brethren in the West, begging for their prayers. Suffering always makes people of deep faith more sensitive to the extraordinary power of prayer. You may be alone in your own room or in a deserted church, but when you begin to pray, you enter into the whole community of all who live and love in Christ. The church made an enclosed Carmelite nun, St. Therese of Lisieux, patroness of the missions, to emphasize that the prayer of love transcends all boundaries, even the boundaries of space and time. All who allow themselves to be possessed by love will be swept up and out of themselves to be more deeply immersed in the life of the glorified man, Jesus Christ, into his mystical body, through whom they will meet each other on a level that they never imagined possible. This is why the first word of the Lord's Prayer is our, and the prayer continues, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The context of prayer is so important, both theologically and psychologically. So we ought to begin by mentally reminding ourselves of the all-embracing world into which we enter, of the vast community of believers with whom we are identifying ourselves 
in Christ. I see the importance of what you're saying, Peter, from a theological point of view, but I'm not quite clear what you mean by saying from a psychological point of view. Well, said Peter, characteristically pausing for a moment, the whole point of prayer is that it takes us out of ourselves, into another world where we no longer live for ourselves but for others, in a community that transcends the barriers of space and time. We are invited into a wholly new spiritual environment where we'll gradually begin to forget our own petty self-centred world as we learn to live with and for all who are alive in Christ and that all may become alive in him. I, I do see what you mean, I said, but do you believe that we should never use the word I never make ourselves the subject of our prayers? No, I don't, Peter replied. There are times when we have to think of ourselves, put ourselves under a microscope, and pray in the first person. I'll come back to this later. But as a general rule, prayer should place us in the mystical body of Christ, where we journey together into the fullness of love. But before I explain the word Father... Let's pause for a cool drink. It's, it's getting very hot. I'm afraid we're not used to such heat on Barra. You were just about to explain the word Father, I said, when we sat down again. So I was, said Peter with a smile. Our Father. He emphasised the last word, Father. Yes, the first word, our, puts us in the right context. The second points us in the right direction. The Gospels show how it is the Holy Spirit who progressively invades and fires the human person of Jesus Christ until he is eventually set ablaze with the love that raised him up and into the Father's infinite loving unto all eternity. It is the flame of this self-same Holy Spirit who radiates between the Father and the Son that reaches out to us also, to fire us with the same love that will enable all to be drawn into the sublime life and love that has been blazing in them and between them from all eternity. It is from within the vortex of this infinite mutual loving that God conceived the plan to share with others whom he created for that very purpose the ecstatic bliss of eternal and ongoing beatitude. This is why his love not only created our world, but became flesh and blood in that world and was born there on the first Christmas day to tell mankind of their sublime destiny. This destiny was not just to a place, but to a person who wanted it to be known that he was not just our father, but in the word that Jesus himself used, our divine, ever-loving dad, or to use the Aramaic word that he used, our Abba. The word actually means daddy, or at least the word daddy is the closest that we can get to the original meaning. Christ's use of this familiar homely pet name was not only new, it would have been shocking to his fellow Jews. I don't mean that God was never referred to as Father before. 
He was called Father thirteen times in the Old Testament. But each time the word was employed, it was used as another word for creator. In other words, God was a father insofar as he was responsible for his own handicraft, in the sense that we would say Michelangelo was the father of his statue David because he carved it, or Herodotus was the father of all history because he created the literary genre. The traditional word for father, then, was already loaded with a meaning that Jesus wished to supersede. The word Abba or Daddy or its equivalent in any language, can mean only one thing. What is a daddy? Who is a daddy but one who communicates his life and his love to his children? The nuance is crucial for the new understanding that Jesus wished to convey about God. God is now no longer to be understood merely as our Father, the one who created us, but the one who chooses to share his life and love with us. This love cannot be imagined, even in our wildest dreams, because this love for which we are destined is beyond the conception of human minds. Even if we multiplied the love of the most loving dad imaginable and multiplied it by infinity, it would not describe the quality of the love for which we are destined. So Jesus not only came to tell us that we had such a dad, but to show us that by entering into his mystical body, we would be taken up, not just into the ecstatic bliss of experiencing our divine dad's infinite loving, but into epicstasy. One moment, uh, I said, Peter, you've lost me. I might well have a degree in theology, but I've never heard of the word epecstasy before. Well, said Peter, many of the fathers of the church use the word ecstasy to describe the ultimate psychological experience that awaits us in heaven. However, St. Gregory of Nyssa, a mystic and a poet, created a new word, the word epecstasy, to express as closely as possible the inexpressible. For when we come to experience the fatherly love of God, our infinite dad, we come to experience not just ecstatic bliss, but ongoing ecstatic bliss that keeps on becoming ever more engrossing as the love with which God fills us opens up our capacity to receive infinite loving in ever greater measure. Thank you, I said, for but introducing me to St. Gregory of Nyssa and this profound mystical insight. Now, I, I know what you're saying is all true, but my trouble is that so often the world of faith seems so far away. You've somehow made things come alive for me by the way you explain everything, but I know me, and in a few weeks everything will seem as dry as dust again. That's exactly why, said Peter, that it's imperative that from now onwards you seriously begin again to rebuild the daily prayer life. By faith we know that God is our Father, but it's only when that faith grows and ripens in prayer that we actually start to experience God's love progressively entering into us.
We may call God Father, but what's in a word unless that word expresses something that is vital and real, something that we know because we have felt it? It is not enough just to accept the bald and undeniable fact that God is a Father. If this truth is to change our lives, which it can, then it must be translated into experience. This can only happen if we put aside the quality daily space and time in which to allow God to become a loving Father to us. We can prevent this happening, and the truth of the matter is we do and we do repeatedly. We just will not allow God to be a father, or more precisely, to be our divine, ever-loving dad. We never seem to have the time, but until we come to realize that there is nothing more important than allowing God to be a father to us by letting him enter into our lives through prayer, then we can never be changed deeply, and we will never be able to change others either. Unless we allow God to touch us with his fatherly love, we may just as well call him Ra, Jupiter, or Zeus for all the practical difference he will make in our lives. Once again, it's not enough just to know with our minds that God loves us. We need to experience that love if it's going to change us deeply and permanently for the better. I was annoyed when the front doorbell began to ring, taking Peter away from me again, and the riveting way in which he'd been explaining our ultimate destiny. I saw him carrying five large cans of paint down to his boat, with the help of a builder from Castle Bay. So sorry about that, he said, as he sat down again. Uh, now, where were we? You have just been explaining our final destiny, I said. Oh, that's right, said Peter. Now, what I suggest to you is this. If you reread St. John's Gospel, you will hear our Lord telling his disciples that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him, and then urging us to make our home in him, where we will be drawn into the life of the three-in-one. For it is he who bonds all of us together in infinite loving. Jesus doesn't tell us these profound truths because he wants to exercise our minds with dry, abstract concepts about the inner nature of what later came to be called the Holy Trinity, but because he wants to inspire us with the truth. The truth is that the Father and the Son have chosen to make their home within us so that the most sublime love affair imaginable takes place within our inmost being, and that we can be drawn into this sublime loving, beginning even in this life. The ultimate experience of God on earth that is only known to those mystics who have arrived at what's sometimes called divinization in the Eastern Church or the mystical marriage in the West, it is always Trinitarian. In other words, they become clearly aware that they are caught up in and experience in some measure the love without measure that revolves endlessly and eternally between the Father and the Son, 
within their own inmost being. This realization is in fact the sign that a mystic is a true Christian mystic and not a counterfeit. Read, reread, and reflect on all that Jesus said and did in St. John's account of the Last Supper, and these profound truths will come alive. Then you will receive far more than mere words through the Spirit who inspired them, and what you will receive will bring you to your knees in thanksgiving and in adoration. But all has not been said, for in this profound mystical vortex of loving that revolves between the Father and the Son, in which we will be caught up and caught up to eternity, we are not alone. We are one too with all who have chosen to enter into this ecstatic joy, with mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, friends and lovers, children and grandchildren, and not just our extended family, but the whole extended Christian family, both living and dead. They are not just living with us in Christ, but they are traveling with us too into never-ending beatitude. Our own personal joy and satisfaction is enhanced beyond our wildest dreams by re-meeting our own families again in Christ's glorified body and in knowing and in loving them as never before. Even in the best of families, the pernicious cancer of selfishness prevented us loving each other as we would have wished while we were on earth. But now that the cancer has been purified away and we have been transformed with pure love, there is nothing to prevent us from becoming the genuine loving families that we always wanted to be, but never really were on earth. Nevertheless, this supernatural and transforming reunion with our families in the next life is not the end of our journey. It is the prelude to a new journey as we set out together upon our final unending journey into eternal life and loving. Together we will not just experience the fullness of ecstatic joy, but the ever more fulfilling joy of experiencing epicstasy as we endlessly go beyond what was once our capacity for love. Because as this journey unfolds, our capacity to receive and give love never stops expanding as we travel without any further let or hindrance into the destiny designed for us by God from all eternity. The reward of the traveller is to go on travelling. The solace of the searcher is to go on searching. As this final journey opens out and expands towards eternity. We are, together with all whom we love and hold dear, bonded ever more closely together as we draw nearer and nearer to the blissful union with the pure, unadulterated loving and goodness that resides in God our Father, our divine and ever-devoted Dad who is in heaven. He is our true home, the home in which he first conceived us and the home for which our whole being has been yearning from the very beginning, 
For as St. Augustine put it, our hearts have been created for God alone, and they will never rest until they rest in him. Peter said nothing more, for there was nothing more to be said, nor had I any questions to ask. We both remained in silence for several minutes before Peter rose. I looked at my watch. Incredible, it was dead on four o'clock. It was hard to believe how he always knew to the minute when it was time to go. Oh, before you go, I said hurriedly, I, I was wondering if you could come over on Saturday morning for a couple of hours. The plane doesn't leave till 2.30. He paused for a moment, looked a little pensive before he said, Yes, yes, that's fine. My heart jumped. That meant two more meetings. It ought to be enough to put me firmly on the right path. I don't want to be mean with my time or my hospitality, said Peter, but I'm rather up to my eyes in things at the moment. I'm in the process of redecorating my cottage with the help of a few friends. Why didn't you say, I asked. I could have given you a hand. Oh, not at all, said Peter. You're supposed to be here on holiday. I'm just sorry I've not been able to invite you over. My heart missed a beat. I never thought that there was the remotest possibility of actually visiting Calvey, Peter's hermitage home. Anyway, he said in a casual, nonchalant voice that struck me fair and square between the eyes, there'll always be a next time. My heart missed two more beats. I never thought that would be possible either. I couldn't believe my ears. Now I knew that I'd not only discovered my own personal guru, but I'd found a friend for life. Mm -hmm.